Father, we do ask as dependent children of yours that now as we come to the reading of your word that you would open our hearts and minds that we would be receptive to hear what your spirit has to say. Lord, help us to see Christ clearly and for our fears to melt away. We pray these things in his name. Amen. It was September 3rd, 1939, when King George VI gave a rousing speech on the eve of his country's declaration of war against Nazi Germany. It was a pivotal moment in Britain's history, one in which they needed every bit of his kingly courage that he could muster. But what was so interesting about this speech wasn't the speech's quality, it was the character of the man who gave it. You see, King George was someone who had suffered from a very serious speech impediment since his early days, and he dealt with incredible anxiety at the thought of giving public speeches. There are times where he would open his mouth to talk, and no words would come out. You know, fear is a powerful enemy. It's not an enemy to be trifled with. It can steal the voice of a powerful king like George, or it can unleash the wails of a tiny child like my wife and I have found out recently. Fear can freeze us in its icy grip, or it can spark hot and desperate anger. And fear is also not just powerful, it's also near to all of us. Uh, Maybe it's not fear of public speaking that troubles you, but maybe it's fear of losing a loved one and not knowing what life will be like without them, or fear of failure in your job or in school. Feel of letting anyone close enough to know you that they might reject you. Or fear of speaking up that you might be shouted down. We all know fear well. It's close to us. And it's no enemy to be trifled with. And is it any surprise then if fear is so powerful and so present that God's enemies would use this readily available and strong weapon against God's people? I mean, think about it. If you need to stop some Christians from being faithful witnesses in their community, intimidate them into silence. Do you need to stop a particular Christian leader who's gaining just a little bit too much momentum? Well, tempt him with insecurities about his financial future and then offer him up a way of getting illegal and illicit funds. We all know this dynamic. It happens all around us in the headlines. It happens in our own hearts. God's people deal with fear. And if we're not careful, that fear can paralyze us and keep us from doing the work God gives us. Well, our passage this morning has everything to say to us to understand that fear it will be present, but that God's people can stand up in the face of fear. Our, pa- our passage in Nehemiah is in Nehemiah chapter 6. Now, if you remember what's been happening in Nehemiah, Nehemiah started off in the king's court, a pagan king with much power, who, through God's good hand, 
saw fit to send Nehemiah back to his home city of Jerusalem with resources and authority to rebuild the walls around the city. Now that's important because without this wall, God's rule and God's reign could not occur. As long as God's people were not safe, they would be unable to accomplish the purpose God had for them. So Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and he starts rebuilding. And we've seen the opposition he's faced at every step along the way. And in the last chapter, chapter 5, we saw how there was even internal problems within the community. Within the walls, God's people were giving God a bad name through their greed and through their lack of kindness to each other. Well, now we turn to chapter 6, and Nehemiah is turning his focus back to the work of the wall. We're going to see, our, as we go through this, we're going to see three distinct waves of opposition to Nehemiah's work on the wall. Three waves of opposition, and at the end of each wave, we're going to see a principle. So three waves, three, opposition, three propositions, one at the end of each wave. So let's look at the first wave. This is going to be in verses 1 through 9. These are the enemies on the outside. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us make, meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah's opposition, his merry band of villains that we've gotten to know well, uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, um, have been opposing Nehemiah at every stop along the way. And they realize the situation they're in. Uh, the wall is substantially complete. Um, it's no longer bits of rubble. It's up, but it doesn't yet have gates or doors on it. So there are still opportunities to attack. And they realize, though, that this window of opportunity is closing. And you can imagine them saying to each other, well, this Nehemiah guy is not playing along well here. We need to do something to stop him before it's too late. So why don't we do this? Let's, let's pretend like we mean well, and let's draw him out from the city away from his protection— and then once he's out, we'll squash him like a bug. So they do this with polite, courteous invitations to come parlay. They invite Nehemiah to come bury the hatchet. Let's put our differences behind us and find a new way forward. 
It all sounds so well and good. Yet Nehemiah sees right through it. And he realizes that the smiling face is very often the one that turns quickly into a scowl. And the one that woos you with pleasantries often is the one that roars the loudest as soon as you turn your back. He refuses their invitation four times. And the fifth time, it's as if our usual suspects here finally get the message and decide it's time to up the ante. The fifth time, they no longer send a pleasant letter. They instead, instead send an open letter. Um, and open letters would be the ancient equivalent of like a press release, uh, something you put on your website, maybe you put it on Twitter. It'd be something that you give it to a messenger and they would go from town to town with it. But since the letter is unsealed, every stop along the way, people would be able to read the letter and it would get into the rumor mill very quickly. Now, this letter... When it arrived on your doorstep, you could be sure everyone has heard this message probably before you even got it, right? And this letter in particular is full of libelous accusations against Nehemiah. There's three particular accusations that they they give. Uh, The first is they say that he's trying to foment rebellion, that Nehemiah wants to overthrow the king and destabilize the kingdom. Second, they say that he is trying to set himself up as king himself. And that to do that is the third accusation. He even hires prophets to go around prophesying, saying, Nehemiah is going to be the king of Jerusalem. But the real bite of this letter comes in verse 7. It's the threat. The king will hear of these reports. That's a line that is supposed to make a chill go up Nehemiah's spine. It's designed to do nothing more than intimidate him and his whole team into stopping the work. The king's going to hear of what you're doing, Nehemiah, so now come out and play or else. God's people are no strangers to intimidation tactics. I was reading just this week about Christians in Iraq and Syria that are being intimidated into closing up their shops, abandoning their homes, sometimes even fleeing the country under threat of death from radical and militant Islam. read another article about a Sudanese woman who was pressured to recant her faith under penalty of death. But we don't have to look overseas to see this same intimidation in action. Uh, maybe it's a co-worker in your office that likes to really squeeze you at an intellectual level to try and make you feel foolish to not talk about your faith. Or maybe just on a college campus, some particularly nasty atheist groups that do all they can to keep the Christians out of the conversation. See, whatever it is, Christians need to learn how to deal with intimidating attacks. Which brings us to our first principle. It comes from verse 9. We need to be ready to combat fear by asking God for strength. Be ready to combat fear by asking God for strength. Look how Nehemiah responds to this intimidating attack. He, first, he just out of hand denies these rumors. He says they're not true. But then in verse 9, he says, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. 
We've seen Nehemiah's characters to turn to prayer in his moments of difficulty, and he does so again. And it's a simple, short, yet profound prayer of dependence on God. God, strengthen my hands. My enemies want me to stop the work. They're trying to weaken me so I cannot do it. Strengthen my hands. I wonder what task God has given you to do that the enemy wants to use fear to paralyze you from accomplishing. Maybe it's raising your kids in a godly home where they hear the gospel with relatives that don't approve. Maybe it's reaching out to a neighbor that is particularly difficult to love. Maybe it's going out and evangelizing people you've never met and worrying about what they might think of you. Whatever it is, realize that you need God's strength to not buckle under fear. We're all dependent on God. We need his help, and we're foolish to think we can do this under our own strength. Yet our God not only is able to supply this strength, He's willing and desirous to give it to us. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told we can draw near to God's throne, to the throne of grace, in our time of need, because of our great high priest, Jesus. And there we'll find all the grace and mercy we could possibly need for our task. This week, maybe just take a moment to pause and pray a simple prayer like Nehemiah did. Acknowledge your dependence to God. Ask him to strengthen your hands for the task he's given you. Name whatever fears there are present preventing you from acting. Ask God to help. He promises that he will. I think the words of Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, are instructive here. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that might be, Christ Jesus, it is he. And he must win the battle. This week, why don't you just simply ask God for help? So our first wave of opposition were the enemies on the outside of the wall. Now let's look at the second wave. Verses 10 through 14, these are are the enemies on the inside of the wall. Start reading in verse 10. Now when I came into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sandalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Well, the latest news from our merry band of villains is that Nehemiah has not come out from 
the city walls. Yet they have to find a way to stop him. So they decide it's time for a new tactic. Let's hire an unscrupulous prophet to bring a prophecy to Nehemiah to try and tempt him into sin. So this is how this one works. They they get this guy who comes to Nehemiah and says, Nehemiah, there's someone who's out to get you. This very night, there's an assassin that's going to come and murder you. Now, I don't think Nehemiah probably needed much convincing that that may be true. Um, He'd had plenty of opposition inside and out already, so this is pretty plausible. But the real trap comes next. He says, so this is what you need to do. Come with me into the temple. We'll go behind locked doors. No one will be able to get you. Now, what makes this trap so ingenious and so insidious is the form it takes. Uh, Not only does it come from a prophet, he's made it, he's crafted this, uh, this lie in the form of a prophecy. Um, it's in a poetic form like a prophecy from the Lord. And the invitation into the temple might actually be uh, an allusion to maybe like Psalm 27 or Exodus 21, uh, passages that talk about finding safety in the temple near the altar. Yet, once again, Nehemiah seems to have this sense this discernment that this is not the right thing to do. And in fact, this prophecy is not from God. So he refuses the prophet on two grounds. First ground is his role as a representative of God's people. He says, how could such a a man as I flee? See, Nehemiah understood that at times your life is about more than just yourself. There are times when your actions have far more weight than you might imagine because people, whether outside the community of God's people or inside, are watching you. I had a friend once who understood this who told me about uh, a situation at his work. He was, a, uh, he was in this office setting with a, a bunch of guys, the same stage of life, a lot of the similar interests, and uh, they got along really well, but he was doing his best to reach out to them as a faithful Christian witness, talk to them about the gospel. And so he decided that there was one level where their camaraderie could not go. And that was that these guys like to, after work, go to the local bar and drink just a little bit too much. So he was no teetotaler, but he decided, you know, for the sake of my Christian witness, I'm just not going to go there with these guys. So one day, one of his coworkers came to him and he said, hey, buddy, um, I know you don't normally come to the bar with us, but why don't you just come down this one time? Just have one drink. I'll even buy it for you. And he said, yeah, you know, I've already told you guys no. Um, I'm a Christian. I don't think it's the right thing for me to do in this situation. So um, I thank you for the offer, but no. So his coworker looked at him and said, all right, well, tell you what. I don't know. This isn't a big deal. Here, I'll even give you $20. Just come down. It won't take more than a couple minutes. Just have one drink with us. The guys will really appreciate it. You can be on your way. My friend said, no. I, I just told you no. $20 or no. I'm not going to do this. I've already decided this isn't the right thing to do. And his coworker looked at him and said, I'll give you $200. Just come to the bar. Just one drink. What's the big deal? And he's like, listen, $20, $200, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to do this. I've already told you no. His coworker reached into his pocket pulled out a wad of cash. He said, this is about $2,000. You can take this money, give it to your church, 
Put it in your kid's college fund. I don't care. Use it for good. You don't even need to come to the bar with us. Here, I've got some alcohol here. Just have one drink in the office with all the guys. My friend said at that moment he realized this wasn't what it seemed. This was not someone who was just trying to have a good time and make him one of the guys. This was someone that knew that he was a Christian and saw him as a representative of all of Christians. This is someone that their very idea of God was coming from the actions that he was now taking. He realized this man was not out for his good. This was a man trying to tempt him into bringing him down to his perceived level. Sometimes your actions are about more just than yourself. Nehemiah understood this, and he refuses. He will not allow God's people to be drawn to fear simply because he is afraid. But I think the second ground for his refusal is even more instructive. He refuses because he fears God more than he fears God's enemies. See, Nehemiah won't go into the temple because even if it comes from a prophet, even if it would be somewhere safe from the assassins, Nehemiah understands it's safer outside the temple than improperly in the temple. Nehemiah was a man who understood this God that he was serving. He understood his holiness. He knew his law. He knew there were some people that were not allowed to go into the temple. That this God gave very specific roles for people within the temple that only priests were allowed to go inside the inner parts. He also knew that this God and his holiness would not stand to let sin be, go unpunished. As fearful as it was to think of an assassin murdering him in the night, it was even more fearful to face God's wrath. This brings us to our second principle how we can stand up in the face of fear. We can be ready to combat fear by remembering God's holiness. Be ready to combat fear by remembering God's holiness. Now, I wonder if this seems harsh to you, that fearing God seems like something improper. God's a God of love. He's a God who's merciful. He's supposed to comfort us. But realize that the path to salvation and peace starts with the bitterness of fear of our sins. Understanding God's holiness actually whets our appetites for the good food of Christ. Without an understanding of God's holiness, you won't fear God's law, you won't fear your sins, and you won't see your need for a Savior. You can see this fear of God, this proper fear of God that Nehemiah has, come out in verse 14. As he prays an imprecatory prayer. It's basically a prayer asking God to judge rightly. He says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Now that may seem petty. You know, it may seem like you know, a neighbor that is unkind and lets their dog do their business in your yard and you pray a prayer like that. That that seems like it'd be individualistic and inappropriate, Uh, but that's not what's going on. Remember, Nehemiah is representing God's people and God's people represent God himself. So these attacks against Nehemiah and these injustices that are being done are actually affronts to God's holiness itself. 
Nehemiah is drawing strength, realizing that one day God will remember these sins, even if Nehemiah can do nothing about them right now. See, one of the things that is most freeing as a Christian is remembering that God will judge. It means you don't have to use defensive measures when someone has harmed you. You don't have to try and get even and get back at them. You don't have to worry about justice being done when it's outside your reach. You can remember our God is holy. He will judge. The same thing is going on in Romans chapter 12. Christians are told, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, you're freed up to respond with mercy and love. The very next verse tells us, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, when intimidating attacks come your way, remember that God will judge his enemies. You don't have to. You can simply go back to focusing on the work you have. Maybe that's even blessing the ones that are trying to harm you. Well, we've seen our first two waves in verses 1 through 14. Enemies outside, enemies inside. Now the third and final wave, the enemies who persist in defeat. Verses 15 through 19. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. As they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This third wave of opposition comes under very different circumstances. The wall is officially finished. The gates are hung. God's people are able to be under his rule and reign with no worry from the outside. There are no more opportunities to come riding up on them at night. God's enemies have been defeated God's people and Nehemiah are victorious. It's a joyful moment. And in fact, the very people who were trying to make them fearful are now themselves afraid. You would expect this means that our merry band of villains would turn tail and run. That they would see all well and good what's happening and decide, well, discretion is the better part of valor. Time to, to pack up and go. Yet instead we see that they persist in their opposition, even in defeat. Tobiah starts a letter-writing campaign. I guess it just goes to show that hate mail goes a few thousand years back, huh? This seems ridiculous on the face of it. I mean, the wall's up. And you're going to write letters to try and intimidate Nehemiah now? Yet, I think that there's a part of us that sees this persistence even in defeat and is fearful of it. Even after a victory, God's, people are gonna, God's enemies are going to keep coming. 
Is there no relief? Is there no end? Well, let me suggest that we have here every reason to see the, the, the threat and the intimidation, yet to have utter confidence that we can keep out the work. This brings us to our third and final principle. You can be ready to combat fear, even persistent fear, by celebrating God's accomplishment. By celebrating God's accomplishment. You see, I think it would be much harder to take these threats seriously behind such a wonderful wall. That it would be much harder to hear Tobias yipping like a little dog behind the wall of silence that God had put up. In our own lives, God's victories and his accomplishments have a way of quieting the voice of God's enemies. Maybe it's work in a ministry that you've taken part of, working with uh, single mothers who you want to choose life instead of abortion. And you have stories that you can think of where God gave you the victory. Those moments strengthen you. Maybe it's a prodigal that you've prayed for years about. And one day God gave you the joy of seeing reconciliation. Remember that moment and draw strength when you begin to fear. But as powerful as all of these individual victories are, the accomplishment that God has given us that is even more powerful, that silences every fear, is the one that we see in the example of Jesus. Remember how Jesus was slandered and mocked and mistreated by a band of merry villains. Remember how their moment of victory actually seemed very sure, and their hands seemed so strong to tear down what his had built. Remember how their victory turned to defeat, how the cross of shame that he hung on was the occasion for the resurrection of glory. How their murderous, the murderous blood that their hands shed became the blood of our salvation. Remember how instead of stopping the work that God was doing, instead they only succeeded in hearing those wonderful and terrible words. It is finished. Brothers and sisters, when you fear Look to the accomplished work of Christ. As Martin Luther wrote, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, tetelestai, it is finished, shall fell him. I think it's only fitting that we close with the example and words of a man who very clearly embodied, standing up in the face of fear to accomplish God's purposes. Patrick Dietrich Bonhoeffer at one point left Nazi Germany and had the decision of whether or not he would return to finish what he saw as his ministry. He ultimately decided that despite the very likely imprisonment and possibly death he would face, that this is what God had for him. He returned back to Germany and in short order, those very events occurred. And by all accounts, he Uh, died with incredible dignity 
not giving in to the fear of God's enemies. These are words that I think are made more profound by his life that he penned years earlier in a sermon called Overcoming Fear. He's writing about what a Christian is to do when faced with fear. He says, Then we name the name of the one who makes the evil inside us recoil, who makes fear and anxiety themselves tremble with fear and puts them to flight. We name the one who overcame fear and led it, in cap- and led it captive in victory procession, who nailed it to the cross and committed it to oblivion. We name the one who is the shout of victory of humankind redeemed from the fear of death. Jesus Christ, the crucified and living one, he alone is Lord over fear. It knows him as master. It gives way to him alone. So look to Christ when you're afraid. Think of Christ. Keep him before your eyes. Call upon Christ and pray to him. Believe he is with you now helping you. Then fear will grow pale and fade away. And you will be free through your faith in our strong and living Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you fear, look to the accomplished work of your Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would use hands such as ours for your work. We pray now that you would strengthen us, remind us of our great Savior Jesus and the work he did for us. Use his finished work to seal out the voice of fear. We pray these things in his name. Amen.